All right, so if you've got a Bible this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1, and this morning we're going to take a little bit of a break for a few weeks from our study in, in Revelation. And so, uh, man, we've kind of been... We kind of been really working hard in Revelation. We got through chapter 3, we got through those seven churches, and so we're going to, there's a natural break in the book. We're just going to take a break for several weeks. God's blessing our church, God's blessing our children's ministry, and so we're going to talk about, for the next several weeks, leaving a legacy, and we're going we're gonna to lay the groundwork this morning to what I believe will be an important series for our church. Uh, it'll be an important series for our families. Uh, and it'll be an important series for our children. And so this will be practical teaching uh, for us as parents, grandparents. Maybe you're here today and you say, well, my kids are out of the house and I'm done with all that. No, you actually have a huge part to play still in your family's legacy of faith. And so uh, this morning we're going to talk about that. And so uh, first off, I, I just want to thank everyone in our church. Many of you know that uh, my wife's grandmother passed uh, this past week. She went home to be with the Lord uh, that was certainly a, a sorrowful time for our family, but I do appreciate your prayers. I, I appreciate your prayers for my wife and for her family. And, uh, you know, when I, when I had the opportunity to share at her funeral, it's kind of like, man, God just confirmed this is where we need to be. Uh, because God, through her life, God, through her life, left a legacy of faith that has influenced uh, my wife. And, and as a result of that, has influenced me and has influenced my children and I shared this verse at the funeral, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, because God, God tells us the power of a legacy of faith through grandparents and through parents. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says of him, he says, I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, Timothy, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded in thee also. In the also, and so I think it's awesome to see from the Bible that there are there is such a thing as a legacy of faith, and it began in, in Timothy's case. It began with a grandmother who had who was full of faith, and that that faith passed down to her daughter, and and she was full of faith, and that faith continued and passed down into her son. And so you have like you know two or three generations there. And so, man, what a, what a powerful testimony. Many of us in this room, we've experienced, hopefully, something like that uh, in our life. And if we haven't experienced that, hopefully our desire is to be that, right? We want to leave a legacy for our kids and, and, and for our grandkids, and, and it's important. And so we're going to look back in the Old Testament the next few weeks in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to see a, a picture, an illustration through the nation of Israel and we're going to study this idea about leaving a legacy. And, and maybe you're asking, well, why are we going to study the book of Deuteronomy? That's Old Testament. What, what in the world does that have to do with anything for us today? Well, it has a lot to do uh, with, with what we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks. And so I want to begin this morning laying the groundwork uh, for this series for the next, the next few weeks. And so this morning, we're not going to get into the weeds. We're not going to get into the specifics. But what we are going to do is lay the foundation of the things that we'll talk about the next several weeks. How many weeks is it going to be? I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll stop and we get done. How's that? You guys cool with that? It's just better that way for you. It's better that way for me. Those of you that like to check the box and say six-week series on, on leaving a legacy, I'm sorry. There won't be a box to check, okay? So, so this morning, I want, to, I want to pray for us, and, uh, and I want to just lay the groundwork uh, this morning. We'll get into some practical stuff at the end. 
But, but before we jump into it, we have to understand some things about the book of Deuteronomy. And so I want to give that to us this morning. So would you pray with me? And let's ask God to, to teach us uh, this morning. Father, uh, thank you for your goodness. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that teaches us. Um, God, we, in our own life, uh, Lord, we thank you. If we, if we walked in today and there's been people in our life that we saw faith in Christ through that impacted us, God, we're thankful for those people. And, and Lord, maybe some of us are first-generation Christians, like maybe our family wasn't true believers in Christ, but God, you got the gospel to us, and, and we responded. Maybe, maybe today we would be stirred to, to see that we can have an impact not only on our children, but our grandchildren, even our great-grandchildren, uh, through what you can do through us. And, and so, God, we want to be good stewards of the gospel and your word and I pray that you bless every family. Thank you for blessing our families. Thank you for allowing us to minister to children uh, in this place and partnering with parents uh, because, because, God, you've given us a, a great mission field through, through our children. It's a great blessing. And so uh, we want to be good stewards of that. And so, Lord, bless us today as we study. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's lay the groundwork of this series, Leaving a Legacy. And this morning, we're going to look at Deuteronomy. But but we're really just kind of going to ramp up, so to speak, uh, to get into this series. Why is Deuteronomy important in your Bible? Uh, well, let me, let me give you some, some keys to kind of put your Bible together. Maybe you're newer to expositional preaching or teaching, or maybe you just think the Old Testament is kind of that history stuff that we don't really, we can learn some cool stuff from history, but it doesn't really apply to us today. Hopefully this morning we'll challenge you in that way of thinking, because the book of Deuteronomy is an important book in your Bible, and here's why. Yes, God is dealing with a nation of people called the nation of Israel. As we get to the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to find that, that when we get to Deuteronomy, it's after Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And so, and so this morning, as we study the, the beginnings of, of, man, where we are in the Bible, we need to know that by the time we get to the book of Deuteronomy in our Old Testament, the nation of Israel has been delivered from the land of Egypt. You say, why is that important? Well, God gives us a picture in the Old Testament of our own salvation through the nation of Israel. You see, in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 3, the Bible says that Israel in Egypt was in the house of bondage. Okay? They were in bondage to Egypt. They were under a wicked ruler. They were enslaved. They were, ta they were tasked to build treasure cities for, for Pharaoh, they suffered. And, and that bondage represents for us a picture or a type of your sin and our sin. Because before Christ, can I just tell you, we were in bondage. We, we were in bondage, we were enslaved to our sin. And, and in, your, in your notes, get this key down, Egypt is a picture of the world and it's a picture of sin. And if you've read the Old Testament, if you've read the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you know that God delivered Israel from Egypt in a very specific way. He delivered Israel from Egypt through the blood of the Passover lamb. You guys remember the story in the book of Exodus? Exodus chapter 12, Israel is crying out to God because of their bondage, and they're asking God to deliver them. And the way that God delivered them was, he says, okay, you get a lamb, and you take that lamb and you make it your lamb and you kill that lamb and you put the blood of that lamb on the post of your door. And I'm going to send my angel through the camp. And if I see the blood, I'm going to pass over judgment on your house. 
But if I don't see the blood, the firstborn of that house is going to die, right? And, and so God gives us a really amazing picture of salvation in the Old Testament through the exodus of Israel by being delivered by the blood of the Lamb. And so, and so that house of bondage, Egypt, is a picture of our sin and our bondage to the world. And by the way, I would encourage you to go back this week and look at Exodus chapter 12. Because God says, when I see the blood, I'm going to pass over. And that's important for us. Because listen, what God did not say in the Old Testament is, and, and bear with me here, God didn't say, when I see your church membership letter. God didn't say, when I see your good works. God didn't say, when I see your denominational preference. God didn't say, when I see your baptism certificate. What God said is, when I see the blood... I'll pass over. Are you guys okay? And so, and so listen, the only thing that can deliver us from our sin is the finished work of the Lamb of God on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Amen. That's it. That's all, there, that's all that can do it. Listen, it is only through the blood of Christ that we can be saved. And so if you're saved in the room this morning, say amen. amen. Because listen, Deuteronomy is for a people who've been called out of Egypt. And if you're saved today, that's you, and that's me. Secondly, Deuteronomy fits in your Bible because it comes after Israel's baptism in the Red Sea. It comes after Israel's baptism in the Red Sea. And, and, and you, you read that account in the book of Exodus where after they came out of Egypt, God led them right to the edge of the Red Sea. And remember, Pharaoh and all of his armies came after them, right? And, and Moses is kind of like, uh, what are we going to do? And God says, well, you just, you know, take the rod and do what I tell you to do, part the, part the waters. And so Moses, by faith, does what God tells him to do. The waters of the Red Sea part, and the entire nation of Israel go through the Red Sea, not the Reed Sea, the Red Sea, on dry ground. And God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that above them... As they went through the Red Sea was a cloud. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't believe that references, right? It should be chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Man, who, who made the slides? Oh, that'd be me. Sorry about that. Okay. <laughs> We're cutting that guy's pay this week. Okay, look at 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the what? Under the cloud and passed through the sea. Now, you know that a cloud is... It's water vapor, right? It's water. And so Israel went through the Red Sea, and so they had water on both sides, and they had a cloud above them. And the Bible says in verse 2, they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And, and this is really important for us to understand because, listen, your Old Testament is showing you something as far as New Testament doctrine salvation comes only through the blood of Christ. That's the only thing that can deliver you from Egypt. But after you get saved, God has a step of obedience for you to take called baptism. You guys okay with that? Listen, you can't, you can't, you can't trust in baptism to save you. It's only through the blood of Christ. But, but, but after you get saved, there is a step of obedience for every Christian, and God paints that picture even in the Old Testament through a nation of people because after their deliverance, they passed under the cloud and in the midst 
of the Red Sea, there was water on three sides, above and on both sides, which is a picture of immersion. They're, they're literally underwater. And they pass through the Red Sea. And God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that was a baptism. Okay, so listen. If, if you've been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ by faith in his finished work on the cross of Calvary, then the next step for you is to be biblically baptized by immersion after your salvation. That's not a part of your salvation. It's not dependent upon, it's not necessary for your salvation. It comes after your salvation. Okay, and, and listen, we have a lot of weird teaching on baptism in, in, in our culture of Christianity, right? There's cults that would teach that if you're not baptized, you're not truly saved. If you're not water baptized, you're not truly saved. You're not full of the Spirit of God. You don't have eternal life. Listen, that is false, that is heretical, and that's cultish. The Bible says that it's only through the blood of Christ that you can be saved. And you're bat Can we go to... Man, I'm going to get in trouble. I was going to try to get through this sermon without getting in trouble. Can we go to 1 Corinthians... Because I just want you to understand that baptism is not the gospel, and the gospel is not baptism. And, it, and if you won't take my word for it, you need to take God's word for it. And you need to take the greatest Christian that ever lived, you need to take his testimony, whom God used to give us the church epistles. His name is the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 16, actually, can we go back to verse 14? Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius. Now listen, if baptism is required for salvation, Paul just said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. And, and basically what he means is you're all going to hell. If baptism is required for salvation. Are you guys tracking with that? I thank God I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name, and I baptized also the household of Stephanus. And besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Verse 17 is the key. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to what? But to preach the gospel, not with words, wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And listen, baptism is not the gospel, and the gospel is not baptism. And your water baptism will not save you from your sin. It won't. You say, well, man, I'm a good person. I got baptized in a church, and I'm trying to I'm trying to just do the best I can. Listen, if your faith is in the municipal waters of whatever water and city that you got baptized in, your faith is in something that you did to earn your salvation, it ain't going to work. And Paul himself said, listen, Christ sent me not to baptize. And by the way, he was the greatest Christian and greatest missionary in the Bible outside of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not going to save you. Faith in the finished work of Christ, Christ alone, is going to save you. 
That is the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sin according to the Scriptures. And, and, and listen, we live in a whacked-out Christian culture that people can't even land on what it truly means to be saved. Can I just tell you what it means to be saved is to recognize you're a sinner, recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin, that he's God in the flesh, and believe by faith that his finished work is able to save you. That's it. And man, we muddy the waters in modern Christianity. And we'll even turn to places like Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 and wrestle verses out of context to somehow justify our religious beliefs. Man, listen. Prove it out. We heard that last week, didn't we? Prove it out. And then hold fast to what the Bible says. And, and let me just say this out loud. Listen, if you're here today, and maybe somehow, some way, you, you were taught that somehow your water baptism saves you from your sin, man, would you be willing to go to the Bible and let God be true? And, and take whatever religious teaching that you've, you've heard and, and verses that have been just yanked out of context in Scripture, would you be willing to prove it out biblically and man, get assurance that you can know that you know that you know that you are saved through faith alone in Christ alone? Man, listen, my heart breaks because, because, again, we don't have, in our Christian culture, there are so many false gospels being preached. And it breaks my heart, man, because people are being deceived. Co told us last week there are people intentionally trying to overthrow our faith. They're trying to overthrow our faith. They're instruments of the devil. And, man, if we're not cautious and careful and if we don't get in that book and prove it out, man, we'll be deceived, okay? So let's, let's make sure, even in the Old Testament, God shows us the blood atonement for deliverance, but then he shows us baptism as the first step of obedience, okay? And so, listen, if you've been saved and you're baptized biblically this morning by immersion, not by sprinkling, not as a baby, but you've been biblically, scripturally baptized after your salvation, Deuteronomy's for you. Because God's wanting to show us something about a group of people that are, that are about to inherit God's inheritance. Number three, the book of Deuteronomy comes after Israel's deliverance from Egypt, after Israel's baptism in the Red Sea. And then thirdly, Deuteronomy comes after the wilderness wanderings. And what God does in the wilderness in the book of Exodus, is he leads his people to learn how to trust him. And that's called spiritual growth. That's called discipleship. And even in the Old Testament, you see a picture of that, right? Salvation wasn't the end, and their baptism wasn't the end. As a matter of fact, God had a very specific destination he was trying to get them. He was trying to get them to Canaan. So look at Exodus 13 and verse 18. It says, but God led the people about through the way of the wilderness. And I, I think it's very interesting that God uses that, that phrase, the way. God led them through the way. And, and some of you Bible students know that, that there's a direct connection to the New Testament way of Christ with that. He led them the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And listen, if you took the time to study that wilderness wandering do you know that in the wilderness, after Israel's departure from Egypt, after their crossing of the Red Sea, 
God wanted to grow them up a little bit. God wanted to mature them before they got into Canaan. That was the end goal, to get them into Canaan. But before God could take them there, they had to mature a little bit. They had to be discipled. And so listen, in the wilderness, you guys remember this story. Most of you know this. Listen, in the wilderness, Israel had to learn to trust God's provision. Do you remember? They came out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They get in the wilderness. And the first thing they say is, man, we're, bro, we're hungry. Like, uh, hello, <laughs> we need something to eat, bro, <laughs> right? And so God, God miraculously provides for them manna, right? The bread from heaven. Do you guys remember that? And, and, and every one of them had the opportunity to go out and gather as much as they could eat every day. And on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much because on the seventh day, the manna didn't fall, right? And, 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 so, and so listen, that manna is the bread from heaven. It, it, it's their spiritual sustenance. It was their physical sustenance, but it points to our spiritual sustenance, Christ said in John chapter 6 and verse 32 that Christ himself is the true bread from heaven. And listen, just like Israel needed to learn to trust in God's provision, so do we. As new Christians, we need spiritual sustenance. And listen, God's not going to rain down manna for you to physically go out and, and gather and consume but God did, God did tell us that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, right? And so God's given us spiritual sustenance through his word. The other thing that they had to trust God for in their provision was they needed water, right? They got thirsty. And again, man, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Moses smote the rock, and that water came out and, and, and quenched the thirst of the people in the wilderness, and God tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 that that rock was Christ. And so Israel had to learn to trust God's provision. Every new Christian has to learn to trust God's provision. There's a time of, of maturing. There's a time of, of, of spiritual growth where, man, man we, we know we're saved. We got baptized. But there's a time of, of maturing and listen, in that wilderness, there were a lot of questions those people had, right? They doubted God. They doubted their leader. They, they doubted God's love for them, their, God's motive for them. And man, God put them in a place where they had to grow. They had to learn to trust him. Okay, so, so secondly, they had to learn to trust in God's protection. Because listen, in the wilderness, there were enemies. There were enemies in the wilderness. And I know these aren't on your, on your blanks, and you can jot them down if you want. But listen, they had to learn to trust in God's protection. In Exodus chapter 17, there's, a, there's an enemy that shows up and begins to fight against Israel. It's the first enemy. It's Amalek. And, and listen, in your Bible, Amalek is a type or a picture of our flesh. He, he's a picture of our flesh because, listen, after you get saved and even after you get baptized and you start growing in your relationship with Christ, it becomes very evident very quick that that old nature is still there, right? Anybody had problems with that old nature this week, right? Anybody having problems with that old nature this morning? <laughs> I'd rather be somewhere else than right here. Okay, yeah, God's trying to give us the spiritual nourishment we need, and man, our old man is like fighting against us, right? Okay, so, so listen, Israel had to learn to trust in God's protection. It, they had to learn to fight in the power of God's strength. They had enemies even in the wilderness, and for the students in the room, listen, if you go to Numbers 21, 
there was a man named Arad the Canaanite and, and Sihon the Amorite. And it's interesting that even in the wilderness, there were three enemies recorded that Israel had to face. Man, Israel had to learn to trust in God's protection. And the reason that's important is because when they get to the promised land, to Canaan, guess what's over there? Enemies. Enemies. And so at some point, we've got to learn to fight the battle in God's power. We've got to learn to trust God for our protection. And then thirdly, Israel had to learn to trust God's prophets in the wilderness. Because God put a leader over them named Moses. And can I just tell you, man, Israel struggled with that a little bit. They struggled trusting God's man that, that God put in their life to lead them. As a matter of fact, if you were to read Exodus, and I've got all the references, and, and I won't bore you with all of them, but I'll give you a few of them, concerning their, their ability to trust God's man in their life to lead them, man, Israel struggled. What you find over and over is, is Israel continually murmured against Moses. Exodus 15, 24, the people murmured against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Exodus 16, 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Exodus 17, 3, the people thirsted for water there, and the people murmured against Moses. Man, you brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst. Come on, Moses. What kind of jerk are you, man? Over, and I, and I got a ton more references. Here's the point. Man, it took them some time to figure out that God put people in their life to lead them. And man, the truth is, when they murmured against their leaders, they really were murmuring against God. And, and I'm going to speak to both sides of that today. Listen, if you're a young, growing leader, and you know God's placed you in an in a opportunity for leadership, whether it's leading a disciple, leading a small group, being a pastor, you need to know that there's going to be murmuring against you. And you had better know that God puts you in that place to lead despite the circumstances. And you also need to know that if God has put people in your life to lead you, then you need to learn to follow. As a matter of fact, you'll never be a good leader if you're not a good follower. And so listen, God, God is the one that put Moses over Israel. He didn't ask that for himself. He didn't ask that to, to be the leader over Israel, but God put him there. And God put his word in his mouth, and God gave him a, a pretty hard-headed group of people to lead. And thank God that, that Moses was meek. Because there were times where God wanted to wipe out Israel. And, it, and Moses became the intercessor for Israel to God. Can I just tell you, man, if Moses and God would have ever got on the same page, it would have been a bad day for Israel. But Moses, again, a picture of Christ in the Old Testament, he became their intercessor. When God wanted to exercise his wrath and judgment, man, Moses went between God and Israel and said, God, if you do this, man, it's your name on the line. And he put it right back on God. He interceded on their behalf. And so listen, when, we, when we're in the wilderness, God wants us to grow and mature. So the wilderness wanderings are really the cash equivalent in the Old Testament of biblical discipleship. And Israel had to learn to fear the Lord. They had to learn to trust God's provision. They had to trust God for, for their protection. And they had to trust their leader. They had to learn to trust the man that God used to lead them. And, and by the way, God always uses 
a man to lead his people. And so, man, they're, they're learning some lessons, and then they get to this place called Kadesh Barnea. And, man, Kadesh Barnea is where Moses sends the 12 spies into the land of Canaan because, because when God delivered them from Egypt, God had a place that they were intended to go. I want to take you to Canaan, man. And, and listen, there's a land flowing with milk and honey. Man, there, there's, there's a dwelling place. This is a land that I promised your fathers. This is the inheritance. And by the way, Canaan is not heaven. It's not a picture of heaven. There are enemies there. That land had to be conquered. None of those things are the description of heaven. And so no offense, if you're old school hymns or talking about Canaan and a picture of heaven, that would be biblically inaccurate, no offense. But, but, but Canaan, what it is, is a picture of spiritual victory. It's, it's, it's spiritual victory in Christ. And so you know the story. Moses sends these spies into the land, into the very place God intended them to be, and they spied the land for 40 days. So get this in your notes. 40 is the number of testing in the Bible. Moses sent these 12 spies in. They were in the land, the, Can the land of Canaan for 40 days. And 40 is the number of testing. You see that all the way through scripture. And you need to turn to Numbers 13 real quick. I need you to turn there because we don't have it on the screen because I couldn't get 20 verses on the screen or 10 verses on the screen. So Numbers 13, man, after those 40 days of testing, it should have been that Israel said, hey, let's go inherit what God's given us. Let's go do what God's called us to do. But instead, they failed the test. They failed the test. Look at Numbers 13, verse 25. You guys there? Amen. Say amen if you're there. Amen. Okay. Say oh me if you're not. Okay. Praise the Lord. Look at verse 25. They returned from searching of the land after 40 days. And when they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran, uh, to Kadesh, and they brought back word unto them unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. I mean, they're carrying like grapes on a cluster through between two men with a big stick. You know, they're carrying this cluster of grapes. I mean, it's like they're walking back with the fruit of the land. Like, look what we found over there, right? And they told him and said, We came into the land whither thou sent us, and surely... It floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. I mean, we've even got evidence. Look at verse 28. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell in the land in the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, and the Termites, and, and all those people. Man, they dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. Listen. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report out of the land which they searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we saw we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, so we were in their sight. And man, I know this is all set up for next week, but can I just tell you, after Israel's salvation through the blood of the Lamb, after the baptism, 
after learning some lessons in the wilderness, God brought them to this, this point of decision, right? It's time to go in and inherit what I promised you. And can I just tell you that happens in just about all of our lives? That God brings us to a point of decision where it's like game time. Man, we, we, we're saved, we're baptized, we've grown a little bit in the Word of God, we, we trust God a little bit, we've learned to, to, to fight some battles in His name and His power. We know that God provides for us and God brings us right up against the inheritance that He wants to give us. And it's a test to see whether or not we're going to follow through with it. And so, and so what I think we see in Israel is the same thing we see in our life. There's three reasons why Israel wouldn't enter into Canaan. And notice I, did, I didn't say they couldn't enter into Canaan because God, God told them they could. As a matter of fact, God said, this is my plan for you. So why, why did they not go in? Well, here's the three reasons. Number one, the people are strong. The people. They saw the people of the land and they said they're too strong. And you'll, you'll kind of see the progression as we go through this. But each of those excuses represent an enemy that we have to deal with as a Christian. Number two, they said the cities are walled. And those cities represent our internal struggle with our flesh. When you study the Bible, you find in Proverbs 18 and verse 11, for instance, it says the rich man's wealth is his strong city and as a high wall, his own conceit. Proverbs 25 and verse 28, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that's broken down and without walls and, the, and, and those cities had strongholds. And man, when Israel saw the cities that they were walled, they said, man, those strongholds are too, they're too hard to overcome. And we do that in our own life. Like, we'll look at this world that we're called to reach with the gospel, and we'll say the world's too big. Uh, we won't say it that way. We'll just say Huntsville's too big. Or our community's too big. We've got 800, 850 homes. Lyle could correct me on this. 800-plus homes in this community. You know, if we're not careful, we'll say, well, this community's too big to reach with the gospel. Where are we going to put 800 people? Well, we'll put them wherever God wants them put. But we're big enough to go get them. And we're big enough to, to take the gospel to the world. We're big enough to get it to the Philippines because that's God's goal. And so listen, the people are too strong. The cities are walled. And number three, the children of Anak are there. And they're giants. And, and if you just did a little study and you landed in Joshua chapter 15, once Caleb and Joshua and the children of this generation actually get into the land, you find that there are three sons of Anak. Shishai. Ahiman and Talmal, the children of Anak. Well, that's very interesting to me that there's a false trinity in the land of Canaan. And so every one of those excuses points to an enemy that we have to deal with as a believer in Christ. So get this key in your notes. The flesh, the world, and the devil are the three enemies that we have to face. And they're not going away. But God's promised you victory... Through, these, through the scripture, through his power, his authority, and a, and a biblical approach to battle, victory is guaranteed for us. And, and, and so listen, Israel, do you remember? Israel had already faced enemies in the wilderness. They'd already learned to trust God for victory. And listen, it, it, 
Maybe it was a smaller form of that. And now that they're face-to-face with Canaan, it seems like the enemies are bigger, right? The people are big and strong. The cities are walled. There's giants over there. Okay, but all that's over there is just a bigger version of what you've already faced. It's the same enemy. It's your flesh. It's the world. It's the devil. And listen, there's no difference. That's why you need to learn in the wilderness how to trust God for victory. Because God's going to bring you to a point of decision. He wants you to gain an inheritance. He wants you to live spiritually victorious. And man, those lessons learned in the wilderness become manifest in Canaan. And those failures that happen in the wilderness are manifest in Canaan. So here's the key warning for all of us. If we're going to search for a reason to rebel against God's word... We're going to find it. If you want a reason not to do what God wants you to do, and you're looking for a reason, you're going to find it. So what happens to Israel? Man, they rebel against God. They fail to cross into, over the Jordan. They fail to enter into Canaan. And ultimately... They die in the wilderness. Now go to Numbers chapter 14, because as it relates to Deuteronomy, man, God brought them right to the point of decision, and Israel failed. And so get this in your notes as you're turning to Numbers 14, because Deuteronomy for us comes after an entire generation failed to enter into the promised land. It comes after an entire generation failed to enter into the promised land. Remember, there were 40 days of spying out the land. But because of Israel's rebellion and disobedience to God from not trusting him enough to actually go in and inherit what God intended, do you know that those 40 days turned into 40 years of wilderness wandering? Okay, check it out. Numbers 14. You've got to turn there. It's not on the screen. But Numbers 14, 29. To 38. So here's what God says concerning this. He says, man, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land, concerning which I swear to make you dwell, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, But your little ones, which you said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, I mean, he's talking to this generation that that rebelled against him. Man, as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years, listen, and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness and after the number of days which, is, uh, which you search the land, even 40 days, each day for a year shall you bear the iniquities, even 40 years. And you shall know my name, uh, you shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said so. I will surely do it unto this evil congregation that are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall not be consumed, and they shall die. And the men which Moses sent to search the land, who returned and made the congregation to murmur against him, By bringing slander upon the land. Remember those 12 dudes, right? Ten of them gave that evil report. Look at verse 37. Even those men 
that did bring up the evil report upon, upon the land, they died by the plague before the Lord. Look at verse 38. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, uh, which were the men that went to search the land, lived still. Okay, so, so what, why that matters is because when we get to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is after an entire generation failed to follow God. You know, God tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, and, and this is, if ever there were an understatement, this would be it. God says concerning this event in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And, wh and what Paul is talking about is the failure of that generation to inherit what God intended for them. And you have to ask the question, well, how many of them was God not well pleased with? Well, when you go back to Exodus, you find that when, when Israel came out of Egypt, God told them to number and offer a, 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 an offering for everyone 20 years old and upward. And in the, in the verse, it tells you that coming out of Egypt, the number of men that were over the age of 20 were 600,000 and 3,550 men. And so go to the next slide, Derek. The men that were numbered when they came out of Egypt was this many. That's just the men. That's obviously not counting their wives and their children. But, but man, that's the homes. That's the families represented that came out of Egypt and that should have went into the promised land. So when God says, with many, he was not well pleased... Can I tell you how many he wasn't pleased with? 603, 548. Are you kidding me? Kind of gives a little, little credence to the word many, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, of all that generation, by the way, including Moses, Two, Caleb and Joshua will please the Lord. Okay, you say, why, why does all that matter? Did I say open your Bible to Deuteronomy 1? Can you go to verse 3? Deuteronomy 1 and verse 3. It says this. It says, it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel, according to all the Lord God had given him in commandment unto them. Forty years later, God has a word for a generation that's about to inherit, if they'll trust God, inherit everything that, that God promised them. But can I tell you, the generation that died in the wilderness, man, those were fathers. And they were grandfathers. And they were mothers. And they were grandmothers. And what you've got to understand about Deuteronomy is these are the children of a rebellious generation that, that did trust God for some things, but they didn't trust God fully. 
And now these are the children that have to make their own decision. Are we going to trust God or not? And, and I think many of us would, would say, you know what, I can relate to that. And, and maybe some of us would even say, you know what, okay, I had a legacy of faith through my family, but I realize now it's, it's my turn. I have to do something with that. Or maybe some of us realize, okay, I didn't have that, but now God's given me that through his grace. What am I going to do as a parent? What am I going to do to leave a legacy to those that God has entrusted me with? I'm telling you, man, that failure in the wilderness, there's so many things we could talk about. But, man, especially as it relates to leaving a legacy, that generation failed, man. They failed. Okay. So, so we want to approach this from a parenting standpoint and a grandparenting standpoint. And, and, and again, this morning is just the setup for next week. Are you guys tracking? You, go, you guys okay? But, but to, to understand why Deuteronomy is so important and why we're landing here, it's because, it's because it shows us so much about our own spiritual growth and our own struggle and, and sometimes our own failure to follow God the way God intends. Okay, so, so let's get the three takeaways on the back of your notes because you got page two today, and then we'll get done, right? Most people, when they see the back side of the notes, they're like, oh, no, you know, oh, we're never going to get out of here. We've got two pages of notes. I think there are some takeaways for us. When we see Israel's rebellion in the wilderness, we ought to, we ought to glean some principles as a parent, as grandparents, as those desiring to invest in children. I think there's something important. Okay, and we need to consider... 600 plus thousand people buried their carcass in the wilderness. God wasn't pleased, man, with their measure of faith. Hmm. Okay, so takeaway number one is this. Parenting, and, and again, we're coming at this from a parenting principle. Man, parenting is going to reveal who we really fear. Parenting is going to reveal who we really fear. And can I tell you, if you go back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 14, when Israel first came out of Egypt, man, they feared the Lord. They had a right walk with God. They feared the Lord. Look at Exodus 14 and verse 31. It says, Israel saw the great work which the Lord God did upon the Egyptians. This is when he flooded them in the Red Sea and drowned them all. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Can I tell you that Israel started good? Man, they feared God, they believed God, and they believed God's man that was leading them. But can I just tell you, something happened. And, and something happened in their life where the fear of the Lord got replaced with the fear of everything else. Okay, so Psalm 111 and verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In Proverbs 1 and verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And listen, if we don't keep a right fear of the Lord, number one, we're not going to believe his word. We're not going to believe his word. You're going to think the Bible is just another piece of manuscript, another piece of literature, another work of the 1600 to 1800 time period with Shakespeare and everything. Listen, if you don't fear God, your view of the Bible changes. If you don't fear God, your view of his leaders change too. And that, that's hard for me to say because, you know, 
I'm one of the pastors of this church. But can I just tell you, the problem is when you begin to lose the fear of the Lord and I begin to lose the fear of the Lord in my life, number one, biblical authority goes away. And so does biblical fellowship. So, so your problem is not your leader. Your problem is a wrong perspective of the fear of the Lord. You see, Israel began to fear for their needs. They began to fear for their food, their water. They began to murmur against their leaders when they were brought to the edge of Canaan. They began to fear the people and the cities and the children of Anak. But God tells us that we shouldn't fear any of those things. The only thing we have to fear is not fear itself. <laughs> Whoever says that needs to be kicked in the shin. The only thing we have to fear is... Uh, is that Brother Roosevelt? I don't know who, that, who said that. I don't, I don't really know who said that. Anyways, look at Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. Here, here's, here's who we need to fear. Look at Matthew 10 and verse 28. It says, fear not them which kill the body. And listen, all of those enemies that Israel was about to face in Canaan had the potential to kill their body, right? The people, the walled cities, the giants. But God tells us in Matthew 10 that we don't need to fear them which kill a body and are not able to kill a soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And listen, there is only one person that can do that. It's God Almighty. And so this fear of the Lord isn't just an Old Testament principle. Because some of you are listening right now and you're saying, man, it's all about grace and love. Right now, this is the church age, bro. Haven't you read the Bible? Well, actually, I have. And I would tell you that this thing of the fear of the Lord is not just an Old Testament principle. As a matter of fact, let me prove it to you. Acts chapter 9 and verse 31. The Bible says the churches had rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified walking in the fear of the Lord. How's that for church-age doctrine? Churches need to walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. And they were multiplied. God tells us in Ephesians 5 and verse 21 that we're to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. So your problem with submission isn't the person you're called to submit to. Your problem is you don't fear the Lord. Your submission is irrelevant as it relates to the circumstances. When you fear God and his word, when you have a right attitude of adoration and worship, you'll do what God's called you to do. So that includes submitting to your employer, submitting to your parents, submitting to pastoral leadership. Whatever area of submission is required in your life, the issue is not the person you're called to submit to. The issue is your fear of the Lord. Colossians 3 and verse 22, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. 1 Peter 2 and verse 17, Peter says, Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the king. You say, well, man, God's my father. How do, I, how do I fear my father? And that is the unique perspective of the Christian. Because as much as God is God, he is our heavenly father. Because we're born again into his family. 
And I think the right perspective is that you understand both sides of the same coin. And I think no better, no better verse shows us that than Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, because it shows us that we're to reverence God, but we're still to fear God. And can I tell you, every one of us err probably on one side of that spectrum or the other. We're comfortable reverencing God as our Father. We just have lost the fear of God in our life. And we probably all actually lean a little more to that side. Hebrews 12 tells us, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably, listen, with reverence and godly fear. And by the way, the next verse tells you why. For our God is a consuming fire. Your physical daddy ain't that. You see, you reverence your, your earthly father because he's due reverence. But man, your earthly father's not God. The God of this universe is a consuming fire. So you reverence him because you hold him in high regard as your heavenly father. But man, you can't lose the fear of God because he is God. He is God. Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Man, I'm butchering my references today. Does that say Genesis? Yeah, whatever. That's the wrong reference. In Genesis, in the book of Genesis, when, a when Abram was commanded to offer his son Isaac on the altar on the mountain, Abraham had to have a right adoration and a right fear of the Lord. And he goes up to the mountain with his son to be obedient to what God has said. And in verse 22 of the, verse, uh, of the chapter, it says this, God says to Abram, he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything to him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Code and I had this conversation. It was like, man, you know, God is all-knowing, right? We would say that God's all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Does he? Yeah, for sure he does. But in the midst of his omniscience, do you see, in, even in that passage, the room for your free will? Because God said, here's what I want you to do. Offer your son on the mountain. And Abraham was obedient because he feared God. You say, how do you know that? Because the verse says that. You too can be a preacher one day. Just read the English. The angel says to him, now I know that thou fearest God. So Abraham had to prove it out. So, so as it relates to parenting, and I know you're looking at the clock and saying, man, we're out of time. Wind it down. Okay, listen. As it relates to biblical parenting, get this key in your notes. The best gift, the best gift you can give your children is your personal fear of the Lord. So, so if we fear the Lord, we're going to believe his word. Amen? If we fear the Lord, we're going to follow his leaders. If we fear the Lord, we're going to submit to his authority. By the way, if you fear the Lord, you're going to take the gospel to the people God told you to take it to. Now, whatever excuse you have for that, if you just fear the Lord, you'll just do what God's called you to do. If you fear the Lord, you're going to mature in your walk with Christ because that's what God wants for you. If you fear the Lord, you're going to learn the word of God. No amens there, but that's okay. 
If you fear the Lord, you're going to strive for a holy life. So we need to stop making excuses. The second thing, as we segue into that second takeaway, let me just segue there and then we'll, 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 we'll deal with it. Takeaway number two. Parents can be tempted to use their children as an excuse not to possess what God has promised. See, we know Israel feared to go into Canaan, but when you read Deuteronomy chapter 1, you get a little bit more insight into who they used as the scapegoat for their disobedience. You ready? They used their children. Now, some of you need to hear me out on this. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39, as Moses is dealing with this next generation and the, and the dying generation, he says, Moreover, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they will possess it. You see, what happened in the wilderness was a generation used their children as the scapegoat and the excuse for not possessing what God had promised. They even said, oh, well, my kids will become prey over there because there's enemies over there. There's giants over there. My kids will get killed over there. And so for the sake of our children, we're going to stay here in the wilderness where it's safe. And I'm going to meddle right here for just a second. Because we use our children as an excuse, don't we? I can't go to church because of the children. I can't go to prayer meeting because of the children. I mean, I mean we have a bedtime and a schedule. I can't serve at church because of the children. By the way, let me go back to that prayer meeting thing for just a second. If your children grow up not learning to, how, to know how to pray with a corporate body of believers in a local church because, quote, unquote, they're the excuse for your rebellion and disobedience, parents, that's on you. See, the problem is that, that some of your children are never going to know what it means to corporately pray with a church family. Because they've become an excuse for you to rebel against God. We can't serve at church because of the children. We can't learn the Bible. Can't get discipled because of the, you know, we got kids. Oh, it's a school night. Well, you just showed your priorities. Oh, we got ball games. You just showed your idol. See, the problem isn't your children, man. The problem's you. Psalm 106, verse 24. Concerning the parents of that generation that died in the wilderness, it says, Yea, they despised the pleasant land. They believed not his word, but they murmured in their tents, which is what some of you may be tempted to do after this sermon. Hello? And by the way, God knows it and hears it. And they hearkened not to the voice of the Lord, therefore he lifted up his hand against them to overthrow them in the wilderness. 
You see, it wasn't the children that were despising the land. It wasn't the children that weren't believing God's word. And it wasn't the children that were murmuring against their leaders. And if they are, they learned it from mom and dad. If your children don't know who their pastors are, that's on you. And it wasn't their children that didn't hearken to the voice of God. It was the parents. So let's end it. Takeaway number three. Parents who don't pursue God are going to lose the privilege of leading their children into a right relationship with God. You know who God put in those children's life to give them an, an understanding of who God is in Canaan? You know who God put in their life? It wasn't Moses, and it wasn't Joshua. It was a mom and a daddy. It was a parent. You see, God specifically has gifted children with parents, and God has specifically gifted children with fathers. That's God's plan from the beginning. It's not children's ministry leaders. It's not student pastors. God's plan is the father, and it's the home. But, but can I just tell you who led those children into Canaan? It wasn't the father's. And it wasn't their pastor either, because he died with them. It was Joshua. It was the young guy. And, and, and we know from comparing Scripture with Scripture that Joshua is, a, is an Old Testament type or picture of Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand that, listen, even when we fail as parents, God loves our children. And I'm telling you, God is so good that he'll put somebody in your kid's life, if you're going to fail in your responsibility, well, God loves your children more than you do. And he's going to put a Joshua in their life. And, and man, Christ is going to somehow get to the fatherless spiritually so that they can have an opportunity to follow him. That's why Deuteronomy is important for us. Okay, so I know we're over, but, but we need to consider a couple of things today. Number one, listen, we may be here today and we may be a product a failed biblical parenting, meaning that, man, maybe our parents weren't even believers in Christ. Well, one, we can forgive them because they didn't even know what to do. Amen? Amen. Can we just forgive them? They didn't know what to do. They weren't born again. They, di they didn't know. And by God's grace, somehow the gospel got to you, and God is greater than your nurturing and even your nature. So it doesn't matter the home you grew up in. You can rejoice, and you can forgive your family and you can move forward in faith. And that's some of us today. Psalm 68 verse 5 says that God's the father of the fatherless. And a judge of widows is God in his holy habitation. And so some of us are, are maybe a product of that. And, and man, God used the gospel and, and radically transformed your life. God's going to show us through Deuteronomy, you better do something with it. You better do something with it. Number two, maybe... You are a born-again believer, man, but you find yourself like Israel, getting right up to a point 
and then failing. And the truth is that that failure is bleeding over into your relationship, specifically with your children or your grandchildren. And man, you realize, hey, I need help because I'm kind of blowing this thing. Can I just tell you there's hope, there's grace, there's forgiveness. But it comes at the cost of repentance. God wants to use you in your children's life. And maybe your children are already grown and out of the house. God wants to use you to impact their life positively. God wants to use you to have an influence on your grandchildren. But it's going to take you committing your life to the Lord and getting serious about your walk with him. God is gracious, man. And and, and I want to encourage you, man, come back next week. Because God has some things. God has some principles that we need to understand concerning our responsibilities, parents and even grandparents, regarding the raising of our children. All right? But it's serious. God takes it serious. So let's take it serious. Amen? All right, we're way over. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll dismiss. Father, God, I, I do thank you for your word. and.